Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. Keith Matheny, uh, ENT surgeon and med tech entrepreneur in Dallas, Texas. So Dr. Matheny, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Of course, Maxwell. Thank you so much. Awesome. So, you know, maybe give us a little bit of an overview, you know, where you went to school, where you did your residency training, and then maybe kind of a a brief overview of what your clinical practice looks like right now. Sure, sure. So as you mentioned, I'm here in Dallas and specifically in North Dallas in the suburbs, and I'm back pretty much where I grew up. So I I went to undergrad at Baylor down the road in in Waco, uh, then did my medical school in Houston at the amazing Texas Medical Center which is three times as big. I was just back there for a med tech conference a few weeks ago, three times as big as it was back then. And even back then it was the 10th largest city in Texas during the workday. So it's, it's blossoming. And then I was fortunate to do my internship and my residency at Vanderbilt in Nashville, but we had two kids uh, while I was a resident. And so we wanted them to be around their grandparents and all four of them were in Dallas at the time. So we, we came back here. I joined a community practice. Uh, Vanderbilt trained us so well. I mean, again, so fortunate to go there and uh, felt comfortable really doing all aspects of ENT. So I joined a community practice uh, here in the suburbs, uh, just down the street from where I grew up, as I mentioned, and uh, still am in a community practice, although I kind of refer to it as a secondary academic practice. We certainly have a lot of students of all types, you know, medical students and nursing students and PA students that come through. Uh, So we have those teaching opportunities. And my partners and I are also very active in clinical trials and and work closely with industry. That's really cool. And though I know ENT, as as we'll probably get into in a little bit, uh, is is a very broad field. I'm I'm wondering, is there any particular area or patient population that you that you particularly focus on? Or is it kind of just you dabble in everything. Absolutely. Most of us do uh, pare it down as we get older. So ENT is really seven specialties and uh, they're only related by the anatomy. The technologies and the techniques can be quite uh, disparate. So I specifically do rhinology. So sinus and allergy and some skull-based surgery, uh, you know, not as much as they would do in an academic center like Emory or Vanderbilt, but uh, some of that. And over the last 20 years, as we'll detail throughout our discussion, much of the site of service for rhinology and other subspecialties in ENT has transitioned into the office setting. And that's been a a hallmark of of my career and something that I've enjoyed that transition. Now, um, as I mentioned, you're obviously also a med tech entrepreneur that has been involved in a variety of different businesses, which which I'll definitely be excited to talk with you about. But I'm curious right now, you know, you you're still practicing, um, and then you're balancing it with you know these these other endeavors. I guess what's your what's your split, and I guess one, how do you do that, and two, how do you think each one enhances the other? It's a challenge for those of us that that try to do this. I mean, it really is having multiple full time jobs and 
as we all know in medicine, it you know being a physician is way more than a full time job, and but we love it that way. I mean, that's that's why we chose it. So the the short answer is you just overlay things one upon another. Um, you know, you I think you do learn as a resident to be super efficient, whether it's uh, sleeping a few minutes here and there or going to the bathroom, but certainly getting things done. You you think, gosh, five minutes is a lot of time. And so I overlay things. Now, more specifically, uh, I probably am practicing about 70 percent of what I used to full time, but uh, I I do it more strategically. So I have two full clinical days a week. Uh, ENT obviously is has a lot of clinic to it. I have a full operative day on Friday and a half operative day on Mondays. So I I have pretty much blocked out Monday afternoons and all day Tuesdays for my other business uh, responsibilities, and so. But it doesn't mean that I can fit everything in in that day and a half, of course. So I do a lot of things um, between patients or during lunches or before and after clinic. Uh, but I think I found a nice balance. There certainly are times and in, in other other podcasts and interviews I've talked about, there are days when you feel like I'm not doing any of these roles even adequately, <laughs> you know. And but then there are other days you think, wow, that's that's really fun. That just today I operated and I did this and we accomplished that as a team. And, and so it's very rewarding. And there are more of those days than the, than the discouraging days for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that variety is, is pretty cool. I mean, you, you have obviously kept your hand in, you know, seeing patients. I'm curious if you, you know, some med tech entrepreneurs that are also physicians I've talked to, you know, they've, some of them, have, you know, have left clinical practice, you know, and obviously people do that for a variety of reasons. Did that, did that ever cross your mind to do that or, or, or not really. And I'm, I'm curious, maybe why not? Yeah. Um, you know, from a time standpoint, it does cross my mind thinking, boy, what I could do if I really just focused on this endeavor or that one. But my feeling on that topic, and I think the majority of those like you and I, Maxwell, are what really empowers and uplifts our entrepreneurial pursuits is the fact that we are physicians, not just being a physician in name, what I mean is actually touching patients and recognizing on a daily basis, okay, well, I could improve things this way or what tool I really need if I had something like this. And I think that's what distinguishes us as physician entrepreneurs from engineers. And I think that's why strategics, you know, these companies spend a lot of time and spend some money having us as consultants because they don't have access to the patients. As soon as we we hang up our scrubs, so to speak, and just become engineers and business people, uh, I think we really set ourselves up to lose touch with uh, what makes our products unique. So I am a huge proponent of at least continuing to practice as much as you can. Some some specialties lend that self lend themselves to that more than others. Um, it's hard to be a surgeon and be part-time, right? Because you have to evaluate a whole bunch of new patients and those that you feel are candidates for surgery, kind of nurse them through that process, actually do the intervention, and then nurse them through the post-op period, as opposed to someone maybe that works in emergency medicine or anesthesia or or something else, traditional radiology, not interventional radiology, but traditional radiology, where you can 
uh, kind of cordron off different parts of your day and different parts of your week. So it is a constant challenge, but I think it's the lifeblood of a physician entrepreneur and what distinguishes us, the fact that we still are touching patients. Yeah, definitely. I think I would echo that in my limited experiences that, you know, even from since when I graduated med school, you know, I see things, you know, as I've gained experience as a resident, you know, you see things differently. And I, I agree with you, you know, seeing patients, doing the procedures, learning those types of things. You think of, it helps you make, think of ideas that if you had, you know, you weren't still in the game, so to speak, uh, you wouldn't necessarily Absolutely. think of that. The flip side is also true, right? And not not to be critical, but there are so many times that I see uh, products that are in somebody's upstream development. And there's just not the the common sense that we get because we're actually seeing patients. You know, you may see some contraption in prototype and immediately think, how how is the physician going to actually ever use that in a patient? Why would they use it in a patient? Or really much more prescient is why would an insurance company ever reimburse a physician for using that in a patient, right? That's really the first question when you're at the whiteboard or even the cocktail napkin stage of an idea is, will this be reimbursed? Because if it won't be, you're wasting a lot of time and a lot of investors' money, no matter how great the idea is. And so I I think that's that's the other part of being a physician entrepreneur is you have some of that natural common sense of what would actually work in clinical practice. And, and someone that is not touching patients may not have that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'm curious, did, how did you get started doing this? Did you do like some of those consulting roles or or did you just have like an idea and just, just went right into it? Or, or I guess- Very know, serendipitous I... <laughs> and very gradual. So I have a few more gray hairs than you. So it's it's been a long road, but gosh, I love it. And I'm so thankful and grateful for where I am. So yeah, if I might take a little time and just, just tell the story, I think it answers sure. a lot of those questions and it allows me to, to thank a lot of people along the way because so many people have helped. So when I joined this practice uh, in, in the suburbs of Dallas 20 years ago, I think exactly 20, a few months past 20 years ago, uh, I joined two great physicians. I mean, absolutely fantastic physicians and who were doing an excellent job at patient care. But like most physicians, they were not running a very good business. And so I, I refer to those days as us being very busy in spite of the surroundings. And this is far and away the rule, not the exception, no matter what specialty it is, no matter what time period we're talking about. We all go to school until our early to mid thirties and we never even have, most of us never even have three credit hours of business one-on-one. And then all of a sudden we're unleashed on these multi-million dollar businesses. And what do we do? Well, we bequeath those responsibilities of running these businesses to the person that seems like they know what they're doing. And that's usually a nurse or a, you know, maybe not even a formal RN or a medical assistant, but someone that's been around the block for 20 years and maybe they know how to interface with insurance companies and kind of sort of know how to do billing and collecting and this, that, and the other, maybe they don't, but it's someone that knows more than we do as physicians. Right. And so our practice was exactly like that. We, my first week of practice, I had 50 new patients. I mean, during COVID I would have killed for a week of 50 new patients. Right. Or, I mean, even, even still as we climb out of that. So, and that was just from the overflow of my two partners. So just answering the phone, 
So they were doing something right. Namely, they were taking care of their referring physicians and doing a great job with their patients. But the, the setting was this. We were in an old office. So 20 years ago, we were in an office that was already 30 years old at that time. So 50 years old now. Uh, by a dying HCA hospital. The hospital has since <clears throat> reinvented itself and is thriving. But back then it was it was in bad shape. The uh, staff in our clinic was a conglomeration of three different practices that had merged and one physician retired. And so those three groups of individuals didn't get along with each other. And there were clicks and that showed forth in poor customer service. We had paper charts. We had at least a rudimentary computerized scheduling system, uh, but more or less paper revenue cycle, paper billing and collecting. ENT, not only is there seven subspecialties, but there are a lot of ancillary revenue opportunities. If you think about hearing aids and allergy shots and doing uh, cosmetic injections, Botox and, and collagen, uh, lots of sleep studies. I mean, there's so many ancillary opportunities. And either this practice at the time was not involved in those or the ones that they had were actually losing money. And, you know, if you take a hearing aid uh, business, for example, that's difficult to lose money. They're uh, typically marked up several hundred percent. Um, but nevertheless, this, this practice figured out how to lose money at the time doing that. And so, again, just because no special training, I was a biology major undergrad and did all the same medical school classes that you did, you know, the same ones I did in college with the same textbooks. It's crazy. I just took over business operations because the other two guys really weren't interested in it, weren't passionate about it. They were candidly, they were making the revenue they needed to make for their families and, and they weren't really worried about it. And so I'm pleased to say four or five years later, we had, really transformed our practice. So we had moved away from that office into three different brand new modern offices in three different parts of this catch area, uh, taking advantage of different referral networks, uh, building new bridges, so rapidly increasing patient care, uh, the number of patients we were seeing. We had figured out how to implement and optimize mid-level providers, which is a mainstay now, but 15 years ago, it wasn't as common, and, and we didn't really know what to do with them. We'd gone paperless. We had really tightened up our revenue cycle, our billing and collecting. Uh, we had a, a optimized web presence, whatever that looked like in 2006, 2007. Obviously, uh, SEO and those things are much, much different now. Uh, in all of our ancillaries, we got involved in everything, and we made them all profitable. Uh, so hearing aid and allergy and cosmetics and sleep and voice and those things were now profit centers for us too. And so um, people around Dallas-Fort Worth took notice and asked, hey, would you help us bring on a PA? Would you help us fix our hearing aid department? Would you help us start an allergy department? And so um, I formed a consulting company called Solutions for Otolaryngology, and that's the underpinnings of a much bigger company now we'll talk about in a moment called USENT. But I was really happy with that. You know, the things that I had learned by making some good guesses, but mostly making some mistakes and learning from mistakes or mistakes of others and, and then writing the ship, I was able to then take that to other practices. And so over the, and that, that still exists today, that consulting arm, 
of USENT. And so over the years, I've managed parts or all of many, many different ENT practices, facial plastics practices, things like that. And it's very rewarding. So a few years after that, the idea of taking this more national uh, came about. And I began to explore what that looked like. And this is one of many, many serendipitous things that happened in my career. My uncle, uh, who is an oncologist in Virginia Beach, Norfolk, he's now retired, but he was one of the founding physicians of U.S. Oncology. U.S. Oncology around here, uh, people would know Texas Oncology in different parts of the country. You may still know it by your local oncology brand name, which is important even from a business standpoint, that decision. But they're all under a McKesson company called U.S. Oncology. What U.S. Oncology uh, is, is a national network of oncologists that have united since 1993, so almost 30 years ago, to take advantage of scale in their purchasing. So chemotherapy and all the paraphernalia you need to infuse chemo, uh, to do insurance contracting on a much more cohesive basis. You know, we hear a lot now about residents at various institutions unionizing. Well, this is a form of that that took place in 1993. Physicians banding together to monitor their outcomes and take their superior outcomes to payers and command better reimbursement rates. Um, and all the, the different things that you can accomplish with scale, such as large clinical trials. Much of the way that we currently treat, treat breast and colon and other major cancers came out of U.S. oncology, as opposed to the uh, large academic institutions. And so my uncle and I just happened to be on vacation together right after McKesson acquired U.S. Oncology. This would have been 2011, 2012 uh, for a huge uh, number. I think back then it was uh, 1.1, no, it was 2.1 billion. And uh, McKesson was really happy with that acquisition. So the power of McKesson aligned with the power of U.S. Oncology really was synergistic. And so McKesson really wanted to replicate that in other medical specialties. Well, my uncle was talking about that with me, and I was telling him about my consulting company and all that I had learned in my practice. And he said, you know, you should talk to the McKesson guys about ENT. That seems like a perfect specialty for them to prove these same concepts in. And so I did, and spent a couple of years and went all the way up in McKesson, and they were very enthusiastic and excited uh, about ENT, but McKesson being far and away the world's largest healthcare company, twice as big as Johnson & Johnson, in fact, twice. Uh, they had no idea how to do anything early stage. And so they um, said, we love ENT, we believe in this, so come see us in about 10 years when you build this and we'll, we'll talk. And so they, they punted me to the same private equity firm, Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe, that put together U.S. Oncology at this point, 20 years before. And that's when we went about really evaluating the market and what a national ENT platform could look like. The first playbook we used was the one that U.S. Oncology used, namely mergers of practices, truly buying practices, lock, stock, and barrel, and merging them together with private equity money. The ENT space, long story short, even still today, is not very enthusiastic about that. There's finally some um, 
some practices that have partnered with private equity and ENT, but certainly 10 years ago, the specialty was was very skeptical and, and nervous about that. So that didn't seem to be the clear path forward. But what was going on simultaneously and what led to um, my one of my other lives in the, the med device uh, space was this transition of the site of service for most of our procedures that I mentioned at the outset of this discussion. So what was going on was uh, more, most specifically balloon sinuplasty, the transition of an angioplasty catheter, um, one that you use in interventional radiology all the time, Maxwell, that was adapted by a, a brilliant uh, physician, Josh Macauer, who's founded many companies out of his uh, incubator in, in Palo Alto area. Uh, but he brought the balloon into the ENT space. And that was such a, a revolutionary uh, procedure, almost a little bit ahead of its time. There was quite a bit of politics and, and controversy about that compared to traditional sinus surgery. That's its own podcast, the discussion of that. But by 2011, we finally were so um, comfortable doing the balloon procedure in the OR that we thought we could do it in the office. And, and we received CPT codes from from the AMA and Medicare reimbursement, and we were starting to do that in the office. And while that's a fantastic thing for everything, it's cheaper for the system, it's healthier and safer for the patient. Uh, with the preferential reimbursement, the physician actually can generate a little more revenue. So it's a win-win-win. The problem was all of a sudden, the cost of practicing ENT skyrocketed. So the hospital the year before was buying these balloons at several thousand dollars a pop. And now to do the uh, office balloon, I was getting a bill from Johnson Johnson, or I was getting a bill from Stryker. And so it made ENT a very expensive specialty to practice. So circling back to the um, discussion about the uh, consulting company, we realized that the path forward for a national ENT platform really looked like some organization that could help with these skyrocketing costs, uh, could help negotiate pricing, work on inventory management, those types of things, and, and one that could bolster reimbursement or at least keep it neutral uh, so we could afford to do these things in the office. And so we decided to make the consulting company a GPO. And what that acronym stands for is a group purchasing organization. And it's a true legal structure. It's not just a, a loose buying group like Costco or something. Uh, it's a formal structure. We have a lot of safe harbors to meet. We have a lot of hurdles to clear. We have a lot of reporting to do on a constant basis. But what it is, is a collection of individuals, in our case, physicians, who purchase products for their practice in bulk as a group. And so we can command much better pricing. And so we we now have that today, but it took years and years to negotiate the contracts and to um, assemble a membership with enough scale to actually uh, garner some good pricing, which we have now. So where that company sits, so the consulting company grew into what we now call is, is USENT partners. We have 630-something physicians uh, 
on our way to about a thousand by the end of this calendar year, purchasing through about 40 direct contracts. So those are with the balloon companies and the capital companies and the hearing aid companies and the allergy companies and the sleep companies, all the different vendors that we use to practice our craft. And across a clinic, we bring an average of 20% savings. The average ENT physician now spends about $400,000 a year just on supplies. That's not as a practice, that's as an individual. So we're putting, you know, roughly eighty-five dollars to $100,000 back into the physician's practice, almost always without them having to switch the technology that they think is best for their patients. So that, that company is very rewarding to bring that kind of cost savings to my colleagues but it also allows me to do what I love, the consulting of the business. So as we, my, my team is probably sick of hearing me say this, but day one is cost savings. That's great. But day two through infinity, we're going to help them run better businesses. So, you know, identifying new revenue opportunities, streamlining what they're currently doing, uh, tightening up the business operations and those things. So when I, when you talk about how I divided my time, that, that side gig probably takes, up the majority of my time, it's the one for which I travel the most and certainly have the most ongoing correspondence and meetings. So that's USENT. So the, is, sorry to interrupt. Is that, I ahead. just want to yeah. ask, ask real quick. Yeah. So, so with that company, essentially what's from your guys and what's the business model? Is it these, pra- these practices remain separate, but they essentially yes. jo- join you guys as, as members of your, your business. And then as a, yeah. as a perk of being a member, they get obviously better pricing and, you know, better, you know, representation when it comes to purchasing supplies and things like that. You hit the nail on the head. So it is quite distinct from a, a private equity driven or, or any kind of uh, external force where the practices are merged together. So our practices are, are all independent entities, their own tax ID numbers, and they're all over the, the 50 states. It's a U.S. based company at this point, uh, probably always will be for what we do just with the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, but they're independent practices. And so they have uh, the freedom to interface with our supplier contracts on what they use and, and opt out of things that they don't use or if they want a, an alternative technology. And uh, they just are able to receive the discounts. The way a GPO is structured, the entity receives a rebate or an admin fee from the supplier on the transaction. And that's a small percentage of the potential savings to the practice. And so that's how we run our operations and, and you know pay our staff and pay the electric bill and things like that to run that company. But the vast majority, I mean, 97% of the savings goes to the physicians. Uh, and in our case, it's actually free to join. We're, we're just happy to share these contracts. And the bigger we all get, the better the contracts will be next time we negotiate them. So yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's great. No, that's um I'm curious, are there are there a lot of I know you mentioned oncology, are there a lot of other specialties that you know of doing this? Cause I mean, there's you know, like orthopedics or you know, like cardiology or anything yeah. like like have you heard of that? Or is this kind there of there are new, several. There okay. are several. Um, but far from all specialties. So this concept really lends itself mostly to those that do a lot in their office um or in an an in-office uh, OR or maybe even an ASC, um, an ambulatory surgery center. So it doesn't really apply to all specialties, but 
but many specialties it does. And there are many of these similar type companies uh, out there. We are the only one currently in the ENT space. There are uh, some uh, several really high caliber hearing aid buying groups. They aren't formal GPOs, but uh, that do a great job there. I know there's an allergy one. Uh, and then some of the, the larger private equity roll-up entities, they are able to take advantage of their scale to negotiate good pricing for all of their members. Uh, but in other specialties, yeah, there are several. Interesting. Um, something you touched on was, you know, the, the development of your, of the balloon catheter device for, uh, for sinus disease. I'm curious, you know, how did you get started? You know, you alluded to this a little bit, but how did you get started doing that? Like what were kind of, you know, the early steps and, and early partners you made that you thought were kind of critical to, to getting that idea off the ground? Yeah. So uh, when I was sitting where you are as a PGY3 at Vanderbilt, you know, do anything for a free steak, right? Um, in a night out. Yeah. Back then we were, we were, you're not making a lot of money now, I don't think, but we were making way less than minimum wage <laughs> back in the day. And so um, I always was enthusiastic when, when the device companies would come and, and want us to try their upstream products and introduce new technology to us. But really, I didn't think much more about it after trying things. But I, I always noticed my my passion and how much I enjoyed this. So that continued out in, in my community practice. And I think I, I developed some sort of reputation for being an early adopter, or at least someone that was always willing to try new technology and, and put in my two cents. And so by the time the balloon uh, was being commercialized, it was probably five years into my practice. And so I was I was one of those individuals that they sought to to try this uh, newer technique. And uh, that really continued. So that would have been, you know, five, six, seven years into my practice. And in a real critical time, I mean, there were so many people and so much technology that taught me things. But I think a real pivotal moment was in the fall of 2011, when a company named Intersect ENT, wonderful company that Medtronic just picked up this year, earlier this year, um, Medtronic ENT acquired them. Intersect makes drug-eluting bioabsorbable stents. So again, you're seeing a trend here. A lot of cardiology technology, cardiovascular technology has come into the ENT space over the last 20 years. And so by that time, you know, I was fortunate to be able to do the first couple commercial cases of their, their stents. They brand them as the Propel stents. Really nice technology. I do a lot of research in, in speaking about it still, even 10, 11 years later. Immediately when I did those first couple cases, I thought, well, there's a million other reasons or uses for something like this. And I'm sure many, many other physicians thought the same thing. But as has been the rule in my career, uh, people at, at Intersect were very ethical and honest with me and basically told me to shut up, not be spouting off these ideas, that I should actually protect them, uh, which I didn't even know what they meant by that. And it's hard to believe just 11 years ago, now I have dozens and dozens of patents. But And when I had things protected, to come back and talk to them. And so not really knowing where, where to turn, but but pushing forward and meeting with an IP attorney, an intellectual property attorney, and filing some provisional patents um, and learning about that, 
that really kicked off this this part of my career, the the med device and technology development. And so I did just that. And, and within about six months, once I had some patent protection, I went back to that original company and said, okay, here's my idea. This is so great. Let's let's put together some prototypes and we can be using this in patients in a couple of months, right? And uh, I sit here 11 years later, having just commercialized uh, about five or six months ago, the technology that I thought of in 2011. So I was so naive, not just about how to patent things, but actually what it takes to have an idea and to jot it down on a whiteboard or whatever, but actually to get it in patients, to get it through regulatory, through all the clinical trials, through the reimbursement hurdles and all those things to actually use it. And it's, uh, it's formidable. But so what the first mistake I made, um, again, out of total naivete, was taking the idea to all of the big ENT companies and saying, isn't this great? Doesn't this make so much sense? And, and of course, they were all very nice and respectful, uh, knowing that I was a customer, right, you know, in retrospect, um, but knowing that they have these large companies have no capacity that's not what they do they don't develop new ideas they build markets they grow um, technology that's already been proven and they bring it to a lot more patients well i didn't really stop and think about that i thought well these are the the six major ent companies one of them is going to like this and and develop it for me and so i spent a lot of time i mean two or three years again simultaneous with when we were building the group purchasing organization so a lot of them were the the people that i was negotiating contracts with in the gpo were also the people that i was pitching my med device ideas to and so that was nice to really build those deep relationships with those individuals and those c-suites but but it really was the wrong play as you know in in med device and i finally learned by 2015 2016 and so at that time, I was I was fortunate to to encounter several people that actually helped us get to where we are now, five or six years later. So people that were skilled in device development early stage, people that knew how to raise money to finance that, people that knew how to expand our IP protection and just to run a business, how to go through regulatory, how to commercialize a product. And so that's when the trajectory really went vertical is once I surrounded myself with the right people in the device world. And of course, my, my specific idea was very different, difficult. Um, it was to make a dissolvable splint that we would use after septoplasty or rhinoplasty. So after nose jobs, but one that was very sturdy during the healing process uh, that would be hemostatic and antimicrobial because of the materials we chose. But then when we were done with it, it would basically just dissolve into a puff of smoke. And so all those things were diametrically opposed and, you know, engineers scoffed and laughed. And, and, and I now know what a difficult ask that was, especially the material chitosan that I wanted to build this device at. And so there were lots of stops and starts and iterations and, and things, but, we finally have just that, where we have the capability to 3D print 
uh, in this material, chitis and a wonderful material that you use in wound dressings, probably in your field, Maxwell. And we use all throughout the nose for epistaxis and post-sinus surgery, but have it sturdy enough to stabilize the airway while it's healing, uh, but then to dissolve or easily be removed and provide those benefits all along the way. And so I'm really happy with it. I don't know if I told my 2011 self that it would be 2022 second quarter when we were commercializing. If I would have pushed through, I probably would have, but I would have been shocked that it would take that long. It's all about surrounding yourself with the right people, right? And so I now have the opportunity to save people a lot of time. And I love when other entrepreneurs, especially physician entrepreneurs, come to me uh, to hear the story because I feel like I can save them years of time that I wasted learning these lessons the hard way. Um, and as I said at the outset, I think physician entrepreneurs are really unique and and will always play a major role in new technology because we're the ones that know what we need. We're the ones that know what's not real easy to use in our clinical practice and how things can be better. That's that's really fascinating and and congratulations on your your recent success. That's that's amazing. That's you know especially sticking with it 11 years. That's that's a long time to dedicate to something. And really I, I think it's so cool how you integrated, you know, concepts from other fields like cardiology like you were saying and and applied them to your own. I'm curious one thing I'm wondering and I, I've actually wondered this for a long time and I'm curious from your perspective is is it easier to do device or technology development in, in academia more so or private practice. And I guess I'm curious from your perspective, like, Great like, like why, uh, and yeah. or maybe even the pros and cons of doing it in either one, yeah. in either venue. Great question. I haven't really been asked that directly, but, uh, so there are challenges to both and there are advantages to both. So first from a physician standpoint, when we're in an academic setting, almost always the academic institution owns all the intellectual property. And so whatever you dream up and invent can be very difficult to tease out as your own idea or certainly your own property. Um, you know, the things that I researched at Vanderbilt as a resident, uh, we had some, you know, amazing uh, cancer drugs. That's what I did most of my research there at the Vanderbilt Cancer Center. And those drugs are now commercially used, but Vanderbilt owns them, not not the head of my lab or the other physicians that worked with me on, on the research. So that's an advantage of being out in the community is whatever I dream up, I own that intellectual property. The downside um, is that I don't have the infrastructure that an academic center has to conduct the clinical trials. Uh, there are fantastic, and I've found ways in multiple companies to outsource things, outsource even my C-suite operations. Um, and there are great clinical research organizations that can help, but it sure is nice for the academic inventor to have the uh, institutional expertise on that. They may even have their own IRB in-house. And so everything from soup to nuts can be done there in that institution. I'm biased because I'm am out in the community, but I'm thankful that I own my intellectual property and I've found ways to conduct uh, meaningful clinical research in the community setting. And so I prefer that freedom, uh, but there are certainly advantages to being in an academic setting too. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious, you know, that, that's obviously huge, the, the intellectual property 
component. And I think you make a great point about how, you know, there's, you know, patent advisors and attorneys, even on staff at some academic places, which you may, which you may or may not have in private practice or community setting. I'm curious for, for the community physicians out there that, you know, want to, you know, have great ideas and, you know, want to see them, you know, try bringing them to fruition. What, what's your advice where maybe not as obvious, like, I guess one where they could, you know, protect their idea, maybe, you know, you know, patent it if, if, if it seems like something that's a good idea and, and kind of take those first steps, cause it may not be as, I guess, obvious in that arena. Yeah. I think it's uh, right at your fingertips. Uh, the first step is to, uh, what I do is Google patents and just see it's that I can't even remember how many millions of patents have been issued. And there's probably millions more that are pending on all kinds of ideas. And so first you want to see if your idea is even protectable. Now, the asterisk there is a good patent attorney can almost always find an angle or a a view of your idea that hasn't quite been protected. So first in your own search, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the USPTO also has a great website that's very easy to search. So you can just see what's out there, see what your competition is for your idea. And then in, in most major law firms, there are extensive intellectual property attorneys that pretty reasonably can help you file provisional patents. You can do it on your own. You know, some of these legal websites where you can do all sorts of contracts and documents. I mean, that's better than nothing. That's better than you just going unprotected and talking about it to other physicians or certainly to industry. Well, my experience has 98% been very upstanding and ethical. I've I've had people try to completely abscond with my ideas and make me a paid consultant and walk away with the the value of these things. And so, again, that's the exception, not the rule, but you have to be smart about it. And so even having a cobbled together patent application, I mean, all what that gives you is the priority date. It's official. There's no style points with the USPTO, right? It's did you file and pay the fee or not? And if you did, then you own that date for a long period of time for you to actually fine tune it and 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 write a better application. But at that point, then I think you know physicians need to know, just like we talked about in business, physicians are brilliant people as a rule. You wouldn't have gotten into medical school and matched in a great residency if you weren't, but that doesn't mean we know everything about business for sure, but also about the law. And so that's where you get what you pay for in a patent attorney. And when you get down to splitting hairs over whether your idea is obvious, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that term, you know, based on some patent from 50 years ago, or not really, those have expired, but but from prior art and say, well, anybody would have thought of that's a natural extension of this, so we're not going to issue a patent. You really need a clever patent attorney to figure out some unique angle so you have something that's protected. Because when you get down the road and you're you're looking to um, sell this company, the, the person buying or investing in the company is going to want to know that their money is protected by an idea that's protected and that it's not very easy to copy it. So first things just, to summarize, search on your own, see what's out there, and then file something. Get some kind of provisional patent filed. But then 
do the the work and pay the legal fees for a very skilled intellectual property attorney to take the next steps. I think that's a great point. You know, you, you get what you pay for and, you know, thankfully most physicians make a nice income where uh, they can, you know, certainly if they're really passionate. And I, I think that goes back to your point earlier where, you know, make sure this is a good idea. Make sure you at least vet it as much as you can that, like you said, can you even get paid for it? Is it realistic? Because it do it does even though physicians make nice money, you, you know we're not, you know, making billions of dollars here. So, <laughs> right. um, you, you have Can to be quickly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm curious. So, let's say you've made that step. You you've patented your idea. You know, the next step is obviously you know getting some type of prototype, getting the design refined, all those things, which also cost money. And mm-hmm. so, let's say it gets to a point where you're like you know, maybe it's kind of outside your, your wheelhouse as far as how much you can afford. What's your, uh, you know, advice as far as, you know, getting funding, you know, do you try to get, is it, can you get grants like you can in academia if you're in private practice or is it, do you try to go to investors? What, or yeah. maybe curious, what, maybe what you, what you did as well in your, in your process. Yeah. Well, um, again, I, I can look back and, and act like I did all these things intentionally, but in many, many cases, I was just very, I'm fortunate and, uh, but the landscape is different. So this is, if you and I were, whatever a podcast was 20 years ago, it probably would have been actually a face-to-face conversation. Imagine that. Um, And we were talking about this topic back then. It was pretty easy to raise a lot of money. I mean, it was expected for most things to kind of flop or for you to be pretty loosey goosey with the money and spend a lot by the time you got to the market. That's not the case now. And so it is very hard, especially early stage, to find any money from an anonymous investor or someone that you don't have a personal relationship with. So you will get to a point in these ideas where you'll be tested. How serious are you about bringing this to the market? And how much are you willing to take out of your own personal income and away from your family to chase your dream? And so at that point, I think the the first source of funding would be, you know, the colloquial term friends and family. So other physicians, uh, people that want to put in $10,000, $50,000, which is a lot of money, but we're not talking about $50 million from an investment firm on Sand Hill Road in, in Palo Alto, right? And so um, a lot of times nowadays, that's all you're going to get. You may have a couple hundred thousand dollars, maybe $500,000, and you have to really push the idea quite a ways before you can expect more cash infusion. The trade-off, too, is every time you take an investor, you're diluting yourself. Not diluting, but diluting. And so I've seen it so many times that by the time a great idea finally gets to market, you know, in my case, 11 years, um, Thankfully, I have guarded my equity closely because in 11 years, I could look up and, and own a fraction of 1% because of all the money that I could have taken during that time. And then nobody makes much money once there finally is an exit. So a physician entrepreneur needs to be very frugal, and that's the landscape now. Big companies are built for a few million dollars, now, not hundreds of millions like it was 20 years ago. And that's done in a lot of ways. One being very frugal, but also fractional teammates. So 
my commercial lead in the device company uh, serves that function for two or three other companies too, because I don't need him 24 seven where we are now. I probably will. And, and then I will pay him appropriately, but the uh, people that, I, that invested at the beginning, um, we have not taken any compensation in the device company. So we're really working for the future value. So that saves money as opposed to hiring a whole bunch of executives that expect a certain level of compensation and a certain level of equity. And then outsourcing. So um, outsourcing the regulatory consultant, outsourcing the development. Even when you get to the point of commercialization, the choice between hiring a very expensive sales force on your own versus using distributors who buy your product at a wholesale price and then it's on them to sell. There's so many decisions all along the way, but that's how a physician can run a very lean operation and not raise millions and millions and millions of dollars, but still get to the goal line. That's, that's uh, I think, great advice. Really interesting. Um, I'm curious, you know, this is an arduous process, like you said, and it's a long process. It's very expensive, obviously. You know, I've heard some entrepreneurs say you need to also recognize when is when you should, you know, kind of not throw in the towel, but realize that, you know, maybe you should move on to something else. I guess if are if yeah. you do you have any thoughts on that? Like when if there if there's, you know, certain tells or certain signs where maybe this is something where, you know, you versus when, you know to save yourself essentially, you know, 10 yeah. years and a million dollars later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, that's a tough decision, right? Because I think our profession chooses people that think opposite, right? We're, we're used to being and in, in where you are as a resident, you know, it's a PGY three. I mean, you're given a ton of autonomy and a ton of responsibility. So we're trained to function that way. And that's not the best way to function in, in uh, real life probably, but certainly in technology development, you actually really need to rely on a team. And so, uh, you know, the physician entrepreneur a lot of times has to, or has a hard time recognizing when they've exhausted their expertise and they need to let their colleagues take over operations. That's one. That's not directly what you asked. Your, your, your question is really, all right, when have you worked on it enough and it's just not going to work and you, you're throwing good money after bad? That's tough. Um, I, there were times that I thought, well, is this really going to be ever you know, commercially viable? And I'm glad I persisted with all of these companies, um, but it did take a much longer time than I thought it would. I think the, the I, what I hang my hat on is if you can still see a clear path on how a physician can use your idea in patients, including reimbursement, all of those types of things. I think you should still go forward. If that path is murky, you're probably wasting your time and money. Interesting. I'm curious also, you know, did you know a lot of people are focusing on how we can save the healthcare system money as well? You know, you know, yeah. sure you may be able to get reimbursed, but does it, you know, does it cost the hospital more than you know, the standard of care or what they would have thought, which I imagine would be a deterrent to, you know, using a certain product. I'm curious, how much did that play into your like device development and, and your other digital health endeavors? And Very and important. Very important question. Yeah. Um, 
hospital systems are, unlike physician practices, hospital systems are run by good business people. And so, and they're not uh, biased or blinded by clinical bells and whistles, if you will. You know, they really, I mean, they the hospital administrators care about patient outcomes, of course. They care about the patients, but they look at it from, well, what, what technology is good enough for these these patients to have good outcomes, but not exorbitantly priced? And so there's always this balance. And so when you have any new technology now, it is incumbent uh, on the company developing it to show the value proposition to the physician in the hospitals. So excellent point. My my device, the first device company that we just launched, is a tad more expensive than what we're competing with, but what we're competing with uh, is been around for 50 years and it's very uh, uncomfortable. It has a lot of potential complications and downsides for patients. So we've spent the time and money showing the distinction to the committee and hospitals don't only care about the bottom line. They're also beholden to their you know, surveys and their scores on and their rating systems. And so when you have a technology that patients are happier with, they have good outcomes, they're more comfortable, that's important for them too. But the onus is on the developing company to demonstrate the value to the hospital system. And you're right, there's always this cost benefit analysis. Um, it's a fine line to to walk because when you, when you have a long-term company and you still have products in the pipeline, you need to have a margin on what you're selling today so you can invest that margin into future products or to pay your investors back or whatever. So everybody understands that. It's just so it's always pushing um, the, the price point of what you're selling in the context of what a hospital system or a physician is going to think is a good value for that patient. You can't get greedy. <laughs> I've seen that. Um, and and people lie to themselves and say, well, if I don't set the price point here, I can never take it back. And someday when we have a CPT code, then it'll be reimbursed at this rate. And if we start lower, I, I get all those arguments, but I think people are deceiving themselves and in, in being greedy. And then it can end up being so expensive that patients never get the technology to begin with. Definitely. Definitely. I, real quick, I want to ask you about your, you know, not only have you done device development, but you've done digital health uh, with your sleep monitoring company. Uh, I'm curious, maybe tell us a little bit about that. And then what are kind of some major differences between developing like a, a digital health technology versus like a, you know, an actual device. And I, I think some of the device developers out there might be, oh man, they have it so easy. It's just software, you know, and that, but I, but I imagine there's some unique challenges with that as well. <laughs> yeah. I think it is a little bit easier, but I'm blessed to have really great software developers. So uh, what you're referring to, Maxwell, is Sleep Vigil, and it's a, a technology that takes data from a consumer wearable like my Apple Watch or a Garmin or an Oura Ring in, into a format in our electronic medical records where physicians can review that data for, first of all, patient tweaking and better patient care, but also billing under some new RPM codes, remote patient monitoring codes that came out just before COVID in 2019. So it's new revenue for a practice too. So 
what Sleep Vigil does is look at the patient's oxygen level, their SpO2, while they're sleeping. So we're monitoring our sleep apnea patients on a nightly basis. And the reason that was important to me and my partners in Sleep Vigil is because we do a lousy job as physicians caring for sleep apnea patients. Um, and it's a very severe disease. People think of sleep apnea and perhaps as snoring and it's more of a social problem where bed partners sleep in different rooms and are angry at each other. It's way more than that. It's sleeping a significant part of the night with suboptimal oxygen level and maximally stressing your cardiovascular and your neurological system months and years to the point where it can be fatal. So it's a much bigger deal than just snoring. And how the current landscape is, first of all, we're only probably treating 10% of people in the United States and less worldwide that have this severe disease. So 90% are not even being treated. And the 10% that are, what we do is we go through the workup, we diagnose sleep apnea, we prescribe a certain treatment, whether it's CPAP or a dental sleep appliance, and then we send them on their way. Maybe we see them once a year and we do a follow-up sleep study about every three years as mandated by, or as the insurance companies let us do. Well, we have no earthly idea what's going on on a night-by-night -night basis in that one, two, or three years. Are they optimally managed? Are they not? Are there variations in their disease state? And the answer, of course, is yes. There are variations, and no, they are not optimally managed. And so what this technology does, very similar to what RPM is used for in a patient with hypertension or a patient with diabetes, is a way for a, a clinician to check on them very frequently and to make clinical adjustments for much better patient outcomes, uh, which as you said earlier, saves the system a lot of money while the physician is also remunerated just a little bit. So those RPM codes, um, you know, they're not huge reimbursements, but at least it's something. And in the way that they're uh, assigned, if a physician looks at patient data and it has to come in electronically, it can't be a, a sticky note where the patient took their own blood pressure and drops it off at the front door. It has to come in in an unadulterated fashion, HIPAA compliantly into the physician's chart. But if that physician looks at that data for as little as 20 minutes a month, then they can bill a certain amount of money to the payers. And so it's it's what we all want to do as we're developing technology, right? It's, it's something that dramatically improves patient care and patient outcomes, but it also is a profitable venture. And this, this is just that. And so... The, I'm blessed to have, again, like in all of my companies and even in my practice, just amazing partners, um, brilliant technology people that are able to, it sounds simple what I the way I explained it, but it is not simple, to interface with all these devices and to take their oxygen data and put it into a cohesive dashboard that a clinician can actually review. But that's what that company does. And so... I failed to mention at the beginning is, yes, I do a lot of sinus and allergy. I pick boogers, right? But I, as I've gone on over the years, I've seen how much the nose impacts sleep. And so now I take care of a lot of sleep patients too. And so this is the natural outcropping of that. I'm really excited about this company. It's newer, 
we just founded it a couple of years ago. So we're just now commercializing it too. But I think it has enormous potential, positive potential to improve um, our care of the sleep disordered breathing patients. That's really cool technology. I mean, I think uh, especially monitoring patients and, and yeah, I just even remember learning in med school, like how much, like you mentioned the you know, sleep apnea can really stress the cardiovascular system. And, you know, it's one of those, I feel like you may not see the immediate benefits of it immediately, but you, but I, I think it's something, you know, long-term, like you said, you're, I mean, yeah, if you we can prevent, know, right. Yeah. We know their, their hypertension is going to be better controlled. There's going to be less cardiac events, less um, cerebrovascular events. I mean, we know even motor vehicle accidents and other things that are caused, you know, last week was, I think drowsy driving week on social media, maybe the past, I saw a whole bunch of posts on various social media outlets. And that is like driving drunk, driving drowsy. And so if, if the 10%, which is abysmal, if the 10% of people that we actually are treating, we're not even doing a good job. And then there's also these 90% out there driving drowsy too. I mean, it's just not safe. And so um, yeah, I'm very, very passionate about it. And I will say, it's scary patients that we think um, we're treating well, how much hypoxia we see. So um, I feel like it's just the tip of the iceberg, <laughs> but but it allows us to make tweaks in their CPAP. It allows us to make tweaks in their oral appliance to consider other newer technologies like Inspire therapy and, and various nasal procedures that I can do. The point is, is we're not just telling them you're good, we'll see you next year. Uh, we're actually more or less doing a sleep study every night to make sure that they are good and that we will see them next year and they're not dead. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, especially bringing that, you know, like you said, essentially doing a sleep study uh, on a regular basis, you know, versus, yeah. you know, like uh, so many of these other tests, whether it's, you know, an EKG or a radiology image, it's, it's one point in time. So I think that's, right. that's right. very powerful. Uh, I'm curious as, as we wrap up here, you know, you've done all these different, you know, you've run a private practice, you've, you know, started a GPO, you've done digital health, you've done medical device, you know, for physicians out there that want to develop their business acumen. And it sounds like a lot of yours came from obviously, you know, definitely experience, but I'm curious if there, if you have any other advice on, you know, cause like you mentioned, we don't, you know, most physicians, unless they did an MBA or had a prior career or something, they don't learn any business, you know, acumen or, or concepts really until they, like you said, are kind of forced to, I guess maybe what's kind of your, your kind of basic advice when it comes to physicians trying to broaden their, their knowledge in that realm. Yeah. As it stands today, I think, um, fight our tendency to, again, how we're trained to be at the end of the ER, taking care of that trauma patient by ourselves and not letting that patient die until help comes. Right. That's not how to do the business side of medicine um, to early and often find colleagues with competence in areas that you aren't aren't uh, as strong in, and then that dovetails into really my dream. You know, as I now I'm really blessed and fortunate, and, and these companies are maturing, and I want the way I want to give back. And I have a my older daughter is pre med; she'll she'll be in medical school next year, so she's a senior in college right now. And one of the ways I want to give back to all that, if all those have helped me is to set up part of the curriculum at my undergraduate institution, my medical institution and at Vanderbilt, a, a course, if you will, 
on the business sides of medicine and then how a physician brings an idea from the proverbial cocktail napkin to commercialization. So where we all can teach each other, you know, uh, a big dream of mine at USCNT as that continues to grow and, and is to have our own incubator, a safe place where physicians can bring their ideas and other physicians can invest in it or, or whatever, but they're less likely to have those ideas stolen and exploited. And so I think as it stands today, since those things really don't exist very, very much, loading the boat early and getting, you know, partnerships with, with people that can help you. But over time, I'm hopeful that there will be programs in our education that deal with these, these flaws in our current education, from my perspective, flaws, deficits that we don't get. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I guess my, my last question to you is I ask everybody this when you're not doing ENT and running all these companies and developing new technology, how do you, how do you balance yourself? What are your, what are your passions outside of that? If, if you can find that balance? <laughs> yeah. It's so important to find balance. And uh, of course, if you ask my loved ones, they probably would say, I don't have that. Um, but I love um, travel, love exercise, I love cooking, um, you know, especially on my green egg, but all kinds of cooking. You know, my, my, both of my daughters are in college. They're at the same college and it's not very far away. So I love spending time with them and getting to know them. One, one, the older one is pre-med, as I mentioned, the younger one is entrepreneurship. So she's in business and I'm, I'm jealous of her when I see the classes that she's taking. I think, "Ah, I wish I would have taken that because you end up having the same classes in medical school that I took in undergrad, you know, but uh, yeah, all, all of those things, um, just seeing the world, it's just so mind opening to get out of your little bubble and your routine and just see how other people live and, and experience. And so that's, that's how I like to spend my free time. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Matheny, really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us. I certainly learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners will as well. I guess the last thing is, is where can people, you know, find you or connect with you if they want to reach out? What's the best this yeah, platform absolutely. to do that on. Well, thank you for this opportunity, Maxwell, and best of luck to you and your endeavors. Uh, so many people made themselves available to me all the time. And so I, I do the same. So probably the easiest way um, is to, to find me on LinkedIn. That's my primary social media platform. Um, and then uh, from there, I've met many wonderful people learned a lot. Some some of us now work together on various ventures and, and hopefully I've helped a few people get further down the road. So that's probably the best, the best way. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we will definitely provide that link below. And uh, again, thank you again. We really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.